0: Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 17. We'll spend, unlike most weeks in Samuel so far, two weeks in this chapter. The chapter divides into three sections, verses 1 to 3 are an important introduction. Verses four to 17, the end of our reading today, are the word of the Lord to David. And then verses 18 to 29 for next week are David's response to the word of the Lord. So this morning we're considering those first two sections and next week we'll take up David's response, except that I'll say one thing about that response now that I think you could predict from our passage this morning, if I am accurate in the way I will characterize it for you, but that will become especially clear next week when we look at this passage, and that is that David wasn't expecting this word from the Lord. David's response in verses 18 to 29 is one of the most striking and beautiful prayers in the entire Bible. He's deeply moved by what he hears in the text that we're considering this morning. And as I just read through the whole chapter this week over and over, it got me to thinking about how to approach this text with you. Because sometimes I think one of the greatest challenges we have as readers of the Bible is appreciating what it was like to hear these things for the first time. And that's a challenge that probably only grows the more that you understand the Bible and the more teaching you had and the longer you've been a Christian. And that challenge is probably then even magnified when you come to key passages. So you come to a text like 2 Samuel 7, which by anybody's reckoning has to be among the most significant chapters in all of the Bible. You come to a chapter like this, And what happens? Well, quite rightly, you want to talk about it in light of everything you know from the rest of the Bible. Right. I mean, we're, we're ready. We're ready to unpack the significance of every phrase of the Lord's word to David and, and to link those phrases to texts in Isaiah and Ezekiel and other prophets and how the New Testament then makes sense of Jesus as the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant and how we could talk about the kingdom and the son of God language and how that's rooted in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7 and what it means and how Jesus is ultimately the king who reigns forever. which is great and that could be the whole sermon and it was just about the whole sermon that I'd largely written this week before I realized I needed to change some of it because while all of that is so important and we'll we'll get to at least the highlights of it towards the end of this week's sermon and some more again next week What actually ended up striking me in reading 2 Samuel 7 over and over this week is that David wasn't expecting this word from the Lord. Because the Lord was up to something far greater than David had imagined he could be. And far greater than David himself could even fully grasp, I think, even after receiving this word from the Lord But David could see enough of it to respond to the Lord in his moving prayer of gratitude that we'll look at next week. So as I considered our text for this morning, I decided to keep the bottom line this, that 2 Samuel 7 itself is as much about the God of the covenant as it is about the details of the covenant. I mean, those details and how they work out in the whole of the Bible is material enough to fill a semester. It's filled multiple volumes written about 2 Samuel 7, just the first 17 verses. But David responds to God, the God who would say these kinds of things. And what I think we find at the core of 2 Samuel 7 is something rather basic, that this is the grace of God. that the God of the covenant is a God of grace. 2 Samuel 7 is at the end of the day about the deeply moving, always surprising grace of God. Which is why I think that the introduction of the passage matters. I've never heard anybody talk about this, but let's start where 2 Samuel 7 starts (laughs) in verses 1 to 3. You can't skip it because these verses clarify something I think important for us about David and help us to understand his response. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7, if you have your Bible open there, sets the scene. Now, when the king, David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, But stop there. When is this happening? Well, we don't know for sure, but most scholars will tell you that this description at the start of chapter 7 means that this event of chapter 7 is actually happening quite late in David's 33-year reign in Jerusalem, because we read here that the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, but then immediately in chapter 8, if you want to glance ahead for a moment, what do we start reading about? Well, David's battles and David's victories against his enemies. The conclusion is that this whole section of 2 Samuel, actually starting back in chapter 5, is not ordered entirely chronologically, but rather thematically to tell us the importance of David. So uh, there was probably quite a time gap between chapters 6 and 7. And in fact, chapter 7 may have taken place after chapters 8 and 9 and 10. Though I think it probably happens before you move into the account of David and Bathsheba in chapter 11. The point is, chapter 7 opens, things are at rest. David's even living now in a house of cedar, according to verse 2. But back in chapter 5, two weeks ago, we only just had him taking Jerusalem from the Jebusites. So time has obviously passed. Things have settled down. David's house was built. And in fact, parenthesis, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you may remember at least the brief reference in chapter 5, verse 11, to the king of Tyre, whose name is Hiram. If you wanna look there at verse 11 of chapter five, the king of Tyre sent, it says, cedar trees and carpenters and masons to build David a house. You see that there in chapter five. The point is we know enough historical data to know that Hiram's rule in Tyre overlapped with David's rule in Jerusalem only for the last several years of David's 33-year rule in Jerusalem. Which then means that what happens here in chapter 7 after the cedar house was built then takes place, well, probably in the very last few years of David's reign as king. All of which helps us because it's easier then to see how from David's perspective... The external threats had been basically dealt with. Israel had begun a period of peace. And as verse 1 says, the Lord had given him rest, which is a big deal if you know the history of Israel up to this point. This is what God promised to give them. So just one example of that in Deuteronomy 12, verse 9, just so you hear one. Not the only one, but it's significant. Moses, speaking to the people ahead of them entering into the promised land, says in Deuteronomy 12, verse 9, you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around. do you hear the echo of that? So that you live in safety and to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, which we know now is Jerusalem, there you shall bring all that I command you. So you hear how the language is explicitly referenced here in 2 Samuel. The bottom line is, as David saw it, God's promises to his people had now been very substantially fulfilled. The goal had been reached. They had arrived. Makes sense. So David's attention then turns to something he thinks seems backwards. Verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, that's the first time we read about Nathan in the Bible. He'll be very important in 2 Samuel, a few chapters down the line, if you know what's coming. The king said, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now, if you were here last week, you saw with me how David understands what the ark of God represents that God is the divine king. So that David is questioning here the appropriateness of the humble tent for the ark compared to the splendid dwelling for himself. And again, the point is, David is now at this stage in his reign where he's thinking through the consequences of the settled permanence of his kingdom and was then the tent that David had pitched Back in chapter 6, verse 17, for the ark, is that still suitable? Did it give proper honor to the true king in this kingdom? Now, that question isn't wrong, I don't think. Certainly, Nathan didn't think it was wrong. Look at verse 3, and Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. He understood what David was thinking seemed noble, seemed rational, seemed right, so though evidently Nathan hadn't received a word from the Lord about it yet, he agreed with David, just do it. Except it turns out it wasn't what the Lord wanted. David hadn't inquired of the Lord about this. Evidently, neither had the Lord's prophet, which ought to remind us that God's servants often mean well, but lack the wisdom of God on their own. I'm, sh- I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure that David and Nathan saw their situation of rest. They rightly attributed that to the Lord, but then they drew the wrong conclusion that the Lord's work was more or less done. Surely now the Lord would want them to build him a house. It seemed a good and a godly plan. But Yahweh will have none of it. Why? Because it wasn't congruent with his purposes. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we're just not able to see as God sees. To honor God by building a splendid house seemed right to David in the circumstances as David understood those circumstances, but David was wrong. We have to ask for the wisdom we lack, James says. David and Nathan did not do that. So later that night, verse 4 of our text, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And what we get in the end is a reversal. David proposes to build God a house. God responds by promising to build David a house. The contours of which the king of Israel can scarcely imagine. So let's look now at this word of the Lord that comes to David in two pieces. First in verses 5 to 11, considering the Lord's purposes for David. And then in verses 12 to 16, considering the Lord's purposes way beyond David. And as I said earlier, I think the foundation of all of it, as we'll see beautifully in a few moments, is the grace of the covenant God that we see in both parts of this section. So then, you're with me, I hope, beginning now in verse 5. The word of the Lord to David. First, we get the Lord's purpose for David. And it starts with a reminder of some Israelite history, right? Go and tell my servant David, which is sweet, actually. Don't read it with a harsh tone. My servant, David, my servant coming from the Lord. That's only used of the likes of Abraham and Moses so far in the Old Testament. As far as I can tell, it's Abraham, it's Moses, and now it's David who get called my servant. This is a close relationship. Thus says the Lord, David, would you build me a house to dwell in? The emphasis in the Hebrew is actually clearly on the you. David, would you do this? And I think there's almost a playfulness in the way that the Lord is speaking to David here. I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Don't hear that harshly. The Lord calls David my servant. But David needs to remember something important here that in contrast to the deities of the surrounding nations, remember David is now the king and he will not be a king like the nations. We've been on about that for a while. That David must see that in contrast to the deities of the surrounding nations, the God of Israel exhibits his splendor in the works he performs on behalf of his people, not in the grandeur of a building. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt said much more about the glory of Yahweh, the covenant Lord, than a structure of wood and stone could ever do. The time for the building of the Lord's house or the temple would come, as we'll see, but it needed to be in the Lord's time when David's son Solomon was king. And it's interesting looking ahead briefly What Solomon prays in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, when in due course he does build the house referred to here. 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So perhaps the initial point is God can't be restricted to any set place as a house would certainly imply in the ancient Near Eastern context. God doesn't need David's project, even if it was intended to honor him. He'll be the one who tells us what he requires. The agenda set by the Lord. And so verse 8 continues then. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus, says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Why say these things about David's past? Well, I think simply to remind him that it was the Lord of hosts who had graciously been at work in David's life from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. All of David's accomplishments from the day he was taken from his father's pasture had been due to the Lord's being with him. The timing of the building of the temple could be no different. All of which then leads into verse 9 where I think we begin to sense a shift happening in the passage. If I'm right in my interpretation of the first three verses of 2 Samuel 7, David may have thought the goal of his life had been reached, that God's promises had been fulfilled, but he was mistaken. There was more to come. Notice how the tense in the back part of verse 9, moves now to the future, right? The Lord had said what he had done. I have been with you. I took you. Now, in the latter half of verse 9, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Do you hear in that the promise that God had made long ago to Abram in Genesis 12? I will make your name great, he said to Abram. Now we learn the Lord intends to fulfill that promise by making David's name great. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. Again, we're back to the promises to Abraham, though this time these words are echoing the song of Moses. And the people of Israel at the time of the Exodus, Exodus 15 verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The people would be established in the land that the Lord had promised to Abraham. But aren't they there now? Continuing in verse 10, and they will be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. But didn't the chapter open by saying that David had rest from all his enemies? All these elements, beginning in verse 9, a great name for David, a secure place, no more affliction for Israel, rest for David. Here's the point. In one sense, all of those things have already happened for David. But these verbs are in the future. Why? Well, because God's grace has future plans as well. Even if David doesn't understand them in some way, the blessings promised to Abraham have a greater future ahead. And it will come about via David, even if David, I would submit to you, cannot understand that. Even if David couldn't know what we know, that the Davidic kings who follow him by and large would fail to promote a secure place for Israel. That the place of God, the people of God, excuse me, would in time be carted off in exile. And yet the promises of the Lord will hold, verses 9 to 11 seem to be saying, because there was more the Lord intended to do well beyond David's lifetime. And so listen carefully now to the very heart and soul of the Lord's promise to David beginning here in the last part of verse 11. And if you're paying attention it shifts from the first person to the third person. Instead of saying, I will do this, I will do this, now the prophet relates it in the third person. The, the, The end of verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You remember that the word of the Lord that came that night for David had begun with the rhetorical question, would you build me a house to dwell in now the question is turned on its head the Lord will make you house not meaning a palace of course but a dynasty this house will be made by the Lord this is how he will make David's name great how he will give his people peace and safety how he will fulfill ultimately the promises to Abraham. Clearly now, we're moving into the promises of God that move beyond David. It all relates to this making of a house for David. And as we just read through the passage, we see the three obstacles to the promise that are dealt with in these verses. The first obstacle in verses 12 and 13 is that David will die. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's this about? David may die, but that will not destroy the promise. The Lord will raise up his offspring, literally David's seed, That can refer, of course, to an individual. It can refer also to an entire line of descendants. And I would suggest to you that both may be intended here. Because clearly Solomon is in focus in part, David's son, son to come. He shall build a house for my name. That's what Solomon does. But then it goes well beyond Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Ed Olam. In the Hebrew, then comes the second obstacle in verses 14 and 15, sin. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, Chesed, for you Hebrew scholars out there. This is the covenant terminology. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Sin cannot destroy this promise. Whenever a reigning Davidic king commits iniquity, you read through the book of Kings, you find out that having Yahweh for his father will mean discipline. But the Lord inserts a limit. It's purely the grace of God, brothers and sisters. He will chasten and punish Davidic kings who go astray, but that judgment will never go so far as to involve a total removal of his covenant love. The Lord says it bluntly. David's line will never meet Saul's end. That's what will make all the difference it is the pure grace of god david's death cannot destroy the promise the sin in david's line cannot destroy the promise but neither could a sinful davidic king bring about the fulfillment of what is promised here and so we come then to the third obstacle in verse 16 Because you and I know that the Davidic kings will fail. And yet, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Time and the failure of the Davidic kingship cannot nullify this promise. In fact, three times in this section, once we read it in verse 13, twice here you find this language translated forever. Yahweh's promise to David would never just play out, if you will. And I love this quote that I looked up between the services because I felt the need to read it from a biblical scholar who writes, verse 13 contains... The first time that David's ear caught the music of those wonderful words which are repeated twice in verse 16 as the climax of the whole oracle and which are echoed and re-echoed in David's prayer and thereafter in poets' psalms and prophets' visions down the centuries until at last, in the hallelujah chorus of the apocalypse, they break in waves of glory and he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, hallelujah Hallelujah. Here we hear for the first time the determination of almighty God that as long as he shall have a human people for his own possession, so long shall the seed of David be the covenanted bearer of a divinely conferred and divinely maintained sovereignty over it. Or in other words, as of 2 Samuel 7, Yahweh's kingdom plan through David's dynasty is unstoppable. How do I even talk about that briefly? The years wore on. In time, David's kingdom was, in fact, destroyed. After Solomon, it divided into two kingdoms each of which in turn would be devastated by an enemy. First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. You know your Old Testament. This was the Lord's doing, the Bible's not afraid to say, because the kings and their people, 2 Kings 17, verse 7, the kings and their people sinned against the Lord their God. Israel learned over the centuries following David and Solomon that the disobedience of her king always brought the nation to ruin. And there were high moments with Josiah and others along the way. But the godly among them knew one thing for sure, that God had promised that the throne of David would be established forever. So they came to see that a son of David must be coming, who would fulfill the conditions of the covenant, who would sit on David's throne, who would rule forever. A succession of imperfect kings could never fulfill that promise. If God were true to his word, he would have to raise up a righteous, obedient son of David to take the throne. The prophets insisted he would do that. I know you know these texts, brothers and sisters, but I have to read a couple of them. Ezekiel, looking to the future salvation of God's people, says in Ezekiel 34, verse 23, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jeremiah, stressing that the coming king will fulfill the condition of righteousness in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. But, of course, it was Isaiah who saw the glory of the son of David more clearly than anyone in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then one day, a child, a Davidic child, is born, a son is given. In him is no sin. Matthew begins his gospel with the detailed genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He will be great, the angel explained to Mary in Luke chapter one, and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. David was not expecting this word from the Lord. Oh, some of it he could understand. His own son Solomon The son he would not have yet but would have, Solomon, would build the temple in Jerusalem in which the ark of God would be placed. But I submit to you that David couldn't have known how the promise in 2 Samuel 7 would find its fulfillment in Jesus. That he would be the offspring of David in whom the purposes of God would finally reach their end. just as promised that son of David would build a house for the Lord's name, but it wouldn't be a temple in Jerusalem. It would be the church. As the son of David and the Lord of David, Jesus now reigns as king in heaven over the true house of Israel. And when I say that, lest it be misunderstood, of course, you know from the Old and New Testaments that this has everything to do with both Jews and Gentiles alike how at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter told how the Gentiles had received the Spirit and Paul and Barnabas told of their success. And then it was James, do you remember, who dealt the final blow in Acts 15 with a reference to the Davidic covenant and its relation to the Gentiles. That's you, brothers and sisters. Quote, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, quoting here from Amos, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Next week, we'll consider the impact that this word of the Lord that came that night had on David when he heard it. But may I suggest to you that in some sense, we can consider the profound impact of these words on us. Brothers and sisters, the promised offspring of David has come. The eternal kingdom has begun. The angel says in Revelation 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. When God has completed all that he has promised, the house of David will be planet earth. Which means then that for you and I and as the church today, the application is to submit ourselves to the Son of David, who right now rules from heaven until the day he puts every enemy under his feet. Our mission is to announce the good news to people in every neighborhood and every nation that they can be joyful subjects of Christ's kingdom forever, because the God of the covenant is a God of grace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit